What's up, English 3322? How are you guys doing? It's the last day of class, which means uh, we're finishing up Cartucho by Nelly Campoveo, which was a quick read, but it was uh, one of my favorite reads of the semester, truth be told. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to say it's been a squiggly kind of semester. Uh, none of us asked for that, and... Um, if you're listening to this in the future, and I anticipate uh, a lot of you might be, because uh, I probably use this podcast over and over again. Um, to that end, I'm like dating it, right? Uh, but I feel like these are important moments. These are historical sort of inflections of not only what's happening in America, not only what's happening in Houston, but what's happening in the world with COVID-19. So I feel like an obligation to sort of capture that uh, history in this podcast. Um, those historical inflection points, especially as they intersect with the material we're talking about for Mexican-American literature. Um, these are historic times. Uh, I said historic times and it went... <laughs> that's that's comforting. Not... If you're tuning... At the time of this recording, I usually record these like one or two days uh, in advance. West Texas crude, uh, which is sort of like one of the big markers of the not only the economy of Texas, but really oil and gas in large, which, you know, we're recording from Houston. This is an oil and gas town. Whatever your thoughts on that. And I have my own thoughts on that. Uh, but, you know, West Texas crude uh, trading on the market today at $10 a barrel. Think of that. It, usually this is a commodity that's trading 60 to $100 a barrel. Um, you know, that's sort of like what keeps a lot of the Houston economy, not all of it, but, you know, quite a huge chunk of it uh, buoyed and, and safe. And it's sort of, you know, we're looking at the cost now of what it, the, the moment we're in with COVID-19, the ways in which commodities are lowered, and the leverage we've given uh, maybe our geopolitical enemies uh, to wield over us um, if they decide to flood the market with oil, crash the price further, and then send the United States into, like, another depression. Not to get too uh, oogie-boogie about it, uh, but that's the leverage we've given countries like Russia and countries like Saudi Arabia by not being uh, energy independent, right? Why is it that we're, uh, you know, so focused on these non-renewable fuels? I've got my own thoughts on this, right? <laughs> as you can imagine. But this is the terrifying thing of the 20th century, or 21st century, rather. See, I'm so scared it knocked me back an entire century. But this is sort of the, the big warning, right? Uh, I don't think we come out of this COVID-19 stuff the same as when we went into it. The ways in which we thought about our markets, the ways in which we thought about commodities that buoyed our markets, uh, the ways in which we think about even supply chains, essential workers, right? Uh, really interesting to me right now that the only people who are really keeping this shit afloat are like, you know, uh, the HEB employees and uh farmers right undocumented migrant workers people who are in the fields picking the food that uh we're gonna eat tomorrow right and, and the other thing is they can't pick it fast enough right it's like rotting in the fields uh meanwhile people are lining up for uh you know in in like jaguars and bmws at food banks crazy this is not just like hitting the lower rungs of society this is hitting like the entire spectrum of the American, uh, you know, population, right? It's bananas. Looking at uh, ABC News the other night, uh, seeing a shot of San Antonio and seeing, you know, food lines that were just miles long, 
right? Not enough testing. They can't get enough chemicals for these for these COVID-19 tests to actually do the tests. There are nine different tests that open in the free market. But it really does dispel this mythology that, you know, the free market is somehow uh, things will be better because of it. Uh, I'm not so sure at this point in time, there needs to be some kind of adult in the room. Not that I'm like a communist or anything. I'm not like saying that you have some sort of like centralized government and, you know, you do away with competition altogether. Um, but there are no adults in the room right now. It's become clear. We have more deaths than anyone else in the, in the, in the, in the world. Uh, yesterday we had 40,000 people dead, uh, which I imagine by the time, um, someone's listening to this in the future, that'll seem really quaint. 40,000 out of, you know, God knows how many people. And these are real people, right? These are people who have brothers and sisters who are fathers and parents, things like that. And 40,000 is nothing to shake a stick at. That is... That is like half of Kyle Field when I was a student at Texas A&M. That's half of an entire... That was like the entire student section of a football stadium. 40,000 people, right? And imagine, you know, you you check into the news. You look at the numbers of Americans dying each day. 600, 700 here, 500 here. It's like, these are a lot of people. These were like mass shootings or terrorist attacks or something. People be up in arms. Completely avoidable. And people want to blame China, right? People want to say, oh, this is China's fault. Uh, you know, we, we should blame them. They, they, they lied about the virus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the truth of the matter is pandemics happen. We're not sure, you know, how it came to fruition. A lot of people think it came from a pangolin. A lot of people think it came from a bat. Some people think it's a bioweapon. Who the fuck knows? But what we do know is that uh, we were caught with our pants down. We didn't take it seriously. It was beyond the realm of American imaginations to believe that it could happen here. And I feel compelled to sort of acknowledge that in the podcast, right? This is a moment in which we got so tribal with our politics between left and right, uh, between who's right and who's wrong, between owning the other side, that really we got caught with our pants down and Americans died because of it. That should go on the record for the podcast and for posterity's sake. It's a really, really, really uh, intriguing and fascinating and uh, interesting time. Americans should not be dying because uh, people did not plan, our leaders did not plan to get enough face masks because they did not plan to get uh, the tests uh, because they did not plan to, uh, you know, they couldn't mobilize. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough gowns. Nurses are wearing trash bags, Right. Um, and again, that's not even liberal bias or conservative bias. That's like, uh, Hey man, the people who are keeping the fabric together, maybe they should be equipped. Maybe they should, you know, have the tools they need to save lives. And who did not plan for this? (laughs) Who did not fucking take this seriously enough to plan? It's, it's bananas. Uh, I'm sure... You know, the Central Bank of America will act as a sort of a backstop for this stuff. There will be there will be companies that get saved. The Shake Shacks of the world are going to be fine. <laughs> uh, the GMs and Chryslers and Fiat Chryslers, rather, and, and, the, and the Fords, I think they'll be fine. But, you know, that pho place down the road, that, that place is not going to be fine. The, uh, uh, the Shipleys of the world, <laughs> not sure those places are going to be fine. Um, the things that make Houston, Houston, 
you know, and that's that's for me that's like the real the real tragedy of this. But again, you look at the heroes. Who was that? Um, Mister Rogers, who said anytime something's going scary, you know, look at the helping people, helping people, right? What a way to sort of round out this Mexican American literature class. The undocumented people who are quote, this is by the federal government, illegal but necessary. Or illegal but essential workers. What the fuck is that, right? Um, illegal but essential. They're essential to the American economy, but they're illegal. Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and just say, fuck that. That's um, it's wrong. It's, uh, it's, it's just wrong. Um, the people who are holding this together... I mean, this is the one thing where we see the sort of silver lining of this. It's not, you know, the guy who's inventing the app or the guy who is doing the cool coding thing, or these captains of industry who are supposed to have the answers and don't have the answers. Uh, it's, it's, it's the frontline workers, man. The hospitals, uh, the doctors, the nurses, the undocumented migrant, the grocery workers, uh, the Grubhub people, all of the people who have kept this economy and kept this American way of life going or some semblance of normalcy going. Uh, and things are not normal, right? It's a real time in which we have to really think about the ways in which, you know, no one's going to look at, you know, ExxonMobil. And when West Texas crude is $10 a barrel, say, why didn't you plan for this? They're going to gas. No one's going to gaslight ExxonMobil. But what they are going to do is going to, they're going to look at, uh, they're going to look at uh, Joe Schmo and say, why didn't you have three months of savings? Why is it that you couldn't pay your mortgage? Why is it that your credit is going to get dinged now because of this? Right, the, the 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 playing field is not level. Right, this is not the the facade of everything is coming down. The machinery is exposed, and we can kind of see everything for kind of what it is. It's fascinating times, right? I feel really compelled to to sort of uh, not only give my spin on it, give my opinion on it, and, and you should take whatever everything I say with a grain of salt. Anyway, I'm your professor. Yes, it is true that I'm teaching in this class. Uh, is this stuff germane to what we're reading today? Actually, yeah, quite a bit of it is, right? This is a moment in which another world, another in another era, about a century ago, the wheels came off, the world came unraveled, and what did the Mexican Revolution look like? And what truths were really revealed uh, in light of that stuff, right? Uh, and so I feel compelled to bring this stuff up, right? I feel compelled to to put these things in conversation with each other. Um, not only because, you know, almost to the date, you know, centuries apart, you know, a century and some change, like 103 years. But but really, um, the nutritional value of it all is uh, there's so many striking parallels, especially when we talk about the gaze, the G-A-Z-E, uh, and who gets to decide or who gets to tell history and who doesn't get to tell history, right? As the Mexican government would sort of invoke in Oitzinapa, the uh, historical truth, right? Uh, which was the government's version of the truth, right? Do the winners get to decide what uh, happened? Or does the onlooker, the privileged witness, have the power of their gaze to look at uh, the events as they experienced it and give their own version of events? I would argue, yeah. And this is the entire uh, point of Nelly Campobello's book. I think of this book... Right, this entire book, in light of a lot of what uh, Susan Sontag, uh, who was a, an incredible memoirist, nonfiction writer, also a novelist, wrote a novel, um, writes about photography. Actually, um, and this is interesting. I'm just going to read a few sections here. 
it's really cool. Anyway, uh, she writes in Plato's Cave, which is a, an essay, quote, humankind lingers unregeneratively in Plato's Cave, still reveling its age-old habit in mere images of truth. Again, she's writing about photography and the gaze, right? But being educated by photographs is not like being educated by older, more artisanal images. For one thing, there are a great many more images around claiming our attention. The inventory started in 1839. She's talking about the inventory of all photography. And since then, just about everything has been photographed, or so it seems. This very insatiability of the photo photographing eye changes the terms of confinement in the cave, our world. In teaching us a new visual code, photographs alter and enlarge our notions of what is worth looking at and what we have a right to observe. They are a grammar, and even more importantly, an ethics of scene. Think of that, an ethics of scene, right? Finally, the most grandiose result of the photographic enterprise is to give us the sense that we can hold the, the whole world in our heads as an anthology of images, right? In the same essay, Sontag goes on to talk about photography as almost a weapon in the sort of, uh, in, in the photographer's hands, right? In the photographer's hands. Uh, as a photographer, as a tourist goes into a space in which they feel uncomfortable, the photograph becomes a weapon, becomes a way in which you can sort of crystallize the entire world around you and say, I have this image. And to sort of gain uh, dominance over that scene. And do we see that in Nelly Campobello's writing? The ways in which as the world comes crumbling down, the way in which she documents, documents that catastrophe of the Mexican Revolution, the way in which we might document the catastrophe we see all around us in this COVID-19 epidemic, what are the truths that are salient within the moment? And this is really the value of Nelly Campobello's writing, is she's not writing with the broad strokes of history, right? The macro narrative that is the sort of what we basically looked at with that documentary, that PBS documentary that we saw that was talking about, you know, going from the Porfiriato to Madero to, uh, you know, all the way to like Calles, you know, and the various sort of iterations of, you know, the Huerta Rebellion and all this, you know, uh, stuff, all the things in between and the skirmishes and the meeting between, you know, Zapata and Pancho Villa and, and uh, Xochimilco and all that stuff. What we get is um, what we get is a person on the ground in Parral in northern Mexico who says, this is my testament, right? And how does that sort of, you know, how is it that then that power, that dominance, the gaze saying, I can sort of take ownership of this war too, how does that not only contest these sort of like um, larger sort of macro narratives that have been written about the war, the quote, historical truth, to borrow that term from Jesus Caram during the Oitzinapa thing, the, the Mexican attorney general uh, during that thing, um, the Oitzinapa, if you're not familiar, uh, was when the Mexican government had disappeared, um, 43 students, um, quite famously, and uh, and was one of those things where they tried to cover it up, and so they called it the historic truth, right? The winners always get to tell the truth. But how is it that the individual narrative can really contest that historic truth? You know, Suntagar, she says, uh, quote, Photographs really are experience captured, and the camera is the ideal arm of consciousness in its acquisitive mood. To photograph is to appropriate the thing photographed. It means putting oneself into a certain relation to the world, what feels like knowledge, and therefore 
like power. Images, which idealize, like most fashion and animal photography, are no less aggressive than work, which makes virtue of plainness, like classic pictures, still lifes, the bleaker sort, and mugshots. There's an aggression implicit in every use of the camera. I like that word that Sontag uses there because it's a really interesting way, you know, the, the aggression of the gaze, the aggression of maintaining dominance over this. And she talks about photography being addictive and sort of weapon-like. Um, and we can really see Campobello, the narrative of Cartuccio, see, you know, take what is sort of these like very macho, machismo tropes of Cartuccio and the Mexican Revolution. And we get these corridos toward the end. We're going to read some of those today. And say, you know, this was... A woman's war too and not only was it a woman's war and women contributed to the overall successes and defeats and battles and the narrative that shaped mexico but here is my narrative that is going to further shape mexico right and so the 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 gaze of the bystander the gaze of the child of the woman who's cooking of the privileged witness becomes a kind of weapon in reshaping the historic truth of the mexican narrative Sontag writes, like a car, a camera is sold as a predatory weapon, one that's automated as possible, ready to spring. Popular taste expects an easy, invisible technology. Manufacturers reassure their customers that taking pictures demand no skill or expert knowledge, that the machine is all-knowing and responds to the slightest pressure of the will. It's as simple as turning the ignition key or pulling the trigger, like guns and cars. Cameras are a fantasy machine whose use is addictive. Photographs help people to take possession of space in which they are insecure. Thus, photography develops in tandem with one of the most characteristic of modern activities, tourism. For the first time in history, large groups, large numbers of people regularly travel out of their habitual environments for short periods of time. It seems positively unnatural to travel for pleasure without taking a camera along. Photographs will offer indisputable evidence that the trip was made, that the program was carried out, that the fun was had. She talks about the ways in which, you know, she obviously she's talking about the, the, a tourist and sort of going somewhere, you know, say they're going to, uh, you know, Brazil or something. They've never been to the Amazon rainforest. And they're feeling a little bit like out of their element if they're from like Ohio or something or Houston. Right? <laughs> and they get to the Amazon rainforest, they photograph it. And by the very virtue of being able to sort of crystallize that, they have a sort of a, there's a dominance in which they can sort of, you know, reign over their um, over their territory. This is a crystallized thing. This is a crystallized landscape in this lens. Um, she talks about there's an aggression to that. A way, a way of certifying experience. Taking photographs is also a way of refusing it. By limiting experience to a search for the photogenic, by converting experience into an image, a souvenir. Right? And she talks about photographs which cannot explain themselves are inexhaustible invitations to deduction, speculation, and fantasy. Right? So how does this apply to Cartuccio's by Nelly Capobello, which he's essentially arguing right here is that these are counter narratives, right? If we, if we look at Capobello's writing through the lens of like Sontag's writing on photography, she talks about, we can, I mean, we can talk about Cartuccio as a way in which those counter narratives not only sort of work against machismo, but become a new kind of revolutionary action, right? A revolution within the revolution. And so you have these narratives, especially about Pancho Villa, which is what we're going to talk about today, that have been sort of like the ways in which the Mexican press had, had sort of painted him 
was this sort of, you know, this barbarous villain or this or this barbarous sort of, you know, there's one journalist and from the early 20th century. Um, his name escapes me right now, but I'm going to go downstairs and get the book in just a second because um, it's really interesting. He calls him a noble savage, right? Meaning that he fights, he thinks he fights for a just cause, but he's base. He's not really educated. And there is some truth to the fact that Pancho Villa, you know, learned how to read late in life. But they talk about Pancho Villa as like a drunk or something. Uh, but we know by historical accounts that like Pancho Villa, you know, preferred milkshakes when he went to bars. <laughs> he didn't actually drink. He was a teetotaler. And in fact, actually had his soldiers uh, shot if they were found drunk. True story. Um so, you know, they talk about him as an alcoholic. He wasn't an alcoholic. And these were all sort of part of the historical narrative that, you know, the winners of the Mexican Revolution liked to paint out about him, that he was a rapist. And, you know, he we know by by virtue of a lot of different things, you know, that he was not a rapist. He did not go and sort of rape and pillage, though I'm sure there are probably anecdotes of, you know, that happening throughout the revolution. You know, we know in every war uh, that rape and, and is, a, is a tool of uh, sort of terror that has been used by Russian soldiers, by American soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, look at My um, Lai, right, that massacre. Uh, look at, uh, you know, anything from the way the British soldiers came and uh, invaded Germany. Same thing, you know, during World War II. That does happen, right? But, you know, the what it, what, what has largely been painted about Pancho Villa um, in the way in which we remember him as a sort of like this disheveled, drunk, noble savage who was hyper-violent, hyper-machista, you know, Nelly Campobello really would push back against that. Uh, and of course, Campobello finds herself a viista. Um, but, you know, so much of her narrative is, is is sort of contesting that. I'm going to pause right here and just go downstairs and find that journalist's name. Give me just a second. Okay, I'm back. Uh, in the moment it took me... Okay, I got to pause here because this is what just happened is fucking historic. Uh, did not anticipate this as I went downstairs to not only grab the book I was about to get, but to eat a sandwich, uh, and then Funyuns, I had the hot Funyuns, good, fucking, better than hot Cheetos, will die on that hill, better than hot Cheetos. Anyway, uh, for the first time in history ever, West Texas Crude, it was crazy, we were just talking about this at the beginning of the podcast, and then time it took me to eat a sandwich, West Texas Crude is trading at negative $8 per barrel right now. They are paying people to take oil off their hands. Has never happened in the history of oil and gas. Fucking crazy. Okay, I, I know this is a Mexican history podcast, but it was, we're talking about cataclysmic times, um, and I, I had, we had just talked about oil and gas. When I recorded this, it was trading kind of low, but it wasn't like negative territory yet weird if it's breaking news to you guys on this podcast because by the time you hear this is probably like you know a couple days old um but this does not bode well <coughs> for uh the future of for the future man i it's um truth be told is a little catastrophic i'm trying to not um you guys know that everything when that ripples out it's not just it's uh, it's pipe fitters it's it's the cad machine guys it's a service industry uh it's education it's um it's it's the global market. What happens in Houston, you know, it's quite a bit of volume. Um, not that I've, I'm a market expert or anything. I'm just a literature professor. Mostly I'm a writer, a creative writer. But, you know, I've got my eye on the market just because it's a, it's a really intriguing time. And this is these are historic times. Um, anyway, take note of what's happening around you. Um, take note of the changes that are going to come in the, in, the, in the next few days. <coughs> I think what's going to happen, we're going to start seeing some really historic shifts, uh, not only in the market, but the future. 
you know, um, uh, Texas was supposed to open up in a few days. I think it still will. Governor Abbott uh, wants to open up Texas, get the economy going again. Uh, but as they say, you know, tell God your plans. Uh, I don't know the exact same, but he'll like something to the effect of he'll laugh at you, that God will laugh at you. What is that? If you want to tell it, if you want to hear a joke, tell God your plans. Something like that, right? God had different plans for Texas. Fuck. Anyways, let's get back to, uh, let's get back to this. So the, the book that I ran downstairs to get, I need a sandwich and eat some uh, hot Funyuns. Fucking hot Funyuns, better than hot Cheetos. We'll die on that sword. Um, is this article by John Reed. Uh, I'm just going to read a little excerpt. Okay, so mind you, this was written like 1917, 1918. And this was a journalist from New York that went down to Mexico and was covering Pancho Villa, had radical access to Pancho Villa as he was doing his troop movements and, and stuff like that. And he says, it's an article he's writing for the American public. Villa was the sort of ignorant peons. He had never been to school. He had the slightest, he hadn't the slightest conception of the complexity of civilization. And when he finally came back to it, a mature man of extraordinary native shrewdness, he encountered the 20th century with a naive simplicity of a savage. Right? That's some fucking racist shit, right? That's racist. It is fucking racist, right? Um, and this was John Reed. This is early 20th century. Mind you, he had this whole idea of Pancho Villa as this noble savage. So you can kind of get a little taste of what Nelly Campobello was really pushing back against. Uh, not only this narrative that had been spun by, you know, the 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 Carrancistas and, and, and other sort of opposing factions of, of the um, División del Norte, you know, Pancho Villa's division. Not only were they pushing back against the scenarios that had been spun about Pancho Villa in Mexico City, but also in New York, um, she felt a real obligation. You can kind of see that sort of um, the rest of Mexico through the 20th century, those sort of fault lines really being exposed here. Uh, if you know anything about Mexican history, and we've we talked about this briefly in class, there is a kind of north-south-central divide. Um, central Mexico being the seat of power, Mexico City, strong central government, not unlike, um, you know, other, a lot of governments in Europe, they modeled their constitution off the United States. Uh, this is after the Mexican revolution, of course, um, but had always kind of had, you know, by virtue of the Porfiriato, which was a dictatorship, a very strong Mexican centralized government. And so, um, that machine, right, the, the ways in which they constantly, you know, killed people who might've spun alternate narratives, we get that. Uh, sort of killing of Madero really um, early in the Mexican Revolution. Um, <laughs> it's really not only to undermine political influence, to undermine resurgency, but to also undermine those narratives that might be, that might go counter to the state, quote, historical narrative to invoke Jesus Caram for like the third time. Um, but really, Nelly Campobello is, is really pushing back against this idea of Pancho Villa as a noble savage, this thing, these racist things that have been written about him as this sort of like, you know, you know, bandit, or this sort of like, you know, he became this sort of symbol of like Mexican banditry or, or like, you know, hyper machismo or viciousness or like, an, you know, uneducated, a peon, right? Um, as much as Pancho Villa was involved in, and even John Reed, the guy who wrote that, that piece in early 20th century, as much he cops to the fact that, you know, he, he thinks he's a noble savage, um, there's without a doubt that Pancho Villa, as he was you know, his base is in Chihuahua, he was governing, right? He was interested in not necessarily becoming the president of the Republic or something like that. He really eschewed that. Uh, and he was the first, Pancho Villa was the first to say, you know, I feel like someone more educated than me should do that, right? And so he kind of owned up to that fact. But he did govern Chihuahua. He was in charge of putting, you know, expelling the Spanish forces 
that had occupied, and these are sort of like, um, not from the colonial era of Spain, but what happened in the north was a lot of these, uh, you know, embassies and consulates of different countries that wanted to protect their interests in Mexico sent like federal forces to Mexico to sort of, you know, impose rule of law in some areas. And what had happened was the ambassador from the UK and the ambassador from Spain had told Pancho Villa, hey, you know, we're here to we're here to help you. We're here to enforce law and order. We're here to protect our interests. And Pancho Villa said, you know, we don't want any more foreign inter- uh, interference. We can govern ourselves. And so he, we know that he did a lot of direct governing. We know as much as they paint him as a drunk, like we talked about earlier, that he was a teetotaler, right? He did not drink at all. He preferred milk, strawberry milk, milkshakes, right? There's a famous picture of him sitting at Sanborns, which is a, a very famous Mexican, um, like, uh, it's it's a diner, but it's also uh, like a like a mall of kinds of sorts. <laughs> I'm coughing for like the third time, getting kind of freaked out. I'm like, do I have COVID? I don't think I do. I've only been out to gas up the car. It's allergies, man. I think fucking West Texas crew is plunging, man. And the COVID shit. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'm having a hard time concentrating. I'm really keeping one eye on this. Anyway, uh, teetotaler, preferred strawberry milkshakes, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, without further ado. Um, let me get into the, into the, to the real meat and bones of, of what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm just going to go through it because I think it's, um, it's a pretty, a pretty straightforward kind of lesson, right? And the gist of it is kind of this, right? All of the events of this book took place between 1916 and 1920, which was the bloodiest part of Chihuahuan history is when the Carrancista forces, uh, led by Morguia actually went to the took it to fight to the División del Norte uh, in North in Chihuahua and really started having it out with uh, the Villistas in the streets. And you get snapshots of that here and there. And we're going to read some of those passages today. Um, but sort of, you know, Carranza had a special kind of cruelty for Chihuahua. Uh, Carranza, obviously head of the Carrancista forces. Um, but he sort of like had it out for Pancho Villa in a lot of ways. Really wanted to turn up the heat, make him pay. And so he was particularly cruel in the north. I think Nelly Campobello gets that sort of, um, you know, wraps her mind around a little bit. And to that end, you know, with these, you know, snapshots of um, of life at this time, we really see the the cruelty of this and the way in which not only the ways in which Villa has been portrayed historically have been, you know, uh, you know, fraught to say the least, um, but the cruelty of the other sides. Right? How can you call Pancho Villa barbarous when the the actual deeds that have uh, been carried out by the Carrancista forces were even more barbarous, right? And so what I think Nelly Campobello is, is writing about here is the way in which Pancho Villa is portrayed, she calls it almost like a, a leyenda negra, which in the uh, the context of Spain, right? I'll just read a quick definition of leyenda negra, but it was usually to sort of... Uh, it was to decenter what the actual historical facts were, right? A black legend, right? A leyenda negra is a historiographical phenomenon in which a sustained trend in historical writing of biased reporting and introduction of fabricated, exaggerated, and or decontextualized facts is directed against particular persons, right? So in this case, we have Pancho Villa. So persons, nations, or institutions with the intention of creating a distorted and uniquely inhuman image of them while hiding their positive contributions to history. Right. So not only, you know, writ large, so we just we talked about Pancho Villa and the Carrancista forces and the way in which they kind of always had it out for him. But we can talk about this writ large about northern Mexico as well. Right. Um, this Leyenda Negra of Mexico is a backward, barbarous, savage place. Right. Mexico City is a civilized seat of the Porfiriato, 
this place that is sort of the seat of government, uh, that is sort of um, uh, has connotations of, a, of an upper crust, uh, a sort of refinement, right? That's where all the money of Mexico flows to. To this day, more money flows through Delegación Cuauhtémoc, which is where... Uh, the presidential palace and, you know, all the stock trading of, of Mexico goes. More money trades through Delegación Cuauhtémoc every hour than through the entire uh, country of Guatemala in like a single year. So it's a lot of volume, right? You think about that? I don't know why I'm talking about stocks so much today. Uh, but anyways, um, you know, during the Calles regime, right, Pancho Villa, you know, was really painted in the national media as sort of a bandit, a murderer. Uh, so we talk about Campo Veo uh, trying to reverse that. Uh, and she really ejects this sort of official narrative, right? Um, and history is replaced with a sort of... Um, she's replaced those things with like a suspicious account. So we can talk about Campo Veo's narrative gaze as one, a social right. Two, a defense against uh, general anxiety of the revolution, the uncertainty of it, right? And three, a tool of power, right? Really a radical kind of gaze through which, as a woman, she can reshape the official narrative of the Mexican Revolution. Um, I want to go to the last, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be on page, it's toward the end, it's like the second to last one, The Women of the North. I feel like this is a good one to read for today. We'll talk about it in just a second. Let me get a little sip of my coffee here. Pow! Just coffee.coop. If you guys don't know that reference, it's a Mark Maron reference from uh, WTF. He goes, pow, I shit my pants. I didn't shit my pants, but like, you know, he says that. And he goes, just coffee. <laughs> Anyways, pow. Women of the North, page 86. It was February and General Villa's troops had arrived. Chonita happily remembers it this way. Quote, the wind was blowing and the brims of their hats were bent against their heads, bathed in dust, mouths dry and eyes weary. They calmly surveyed the streets. They rode in on horseback and they were happy to be there. The people who saw them still remember the way it was. Yes, of course, yes, say the women. Over there came Nicolás Fernández, tall, slim, with highway dust all over his face. He went by here very quietly, and he stopped in front of the main barracks to talk with Villa. Then he turned his horse and left by way of the corner over there. They extend a hand to point out that way, and then go on remembering the faces and figures of those centaurs of the Chihuahua Mountains. Martin Lopez, that boyish fellow, looked just like a Saint Michael in combat. Don't you remember how the handkerchief around his neck would flutter as he bent over his horse and rode into the gunfire right into the enemy ranks? Who could have stopped him? Bullets couldn't hit him. Martin, the one who cried when he remembered his brother Paulito, went off in that direction, through that alleyway, and they point a narrow little street full of stones. He was leaning forward over his horse. And from that other street, the enemy was riding into town. You could see his shadow as he jumped over the embattlements. But the enemy couldn't see him. St. Michael was protecting him. Voices repeat Martin's name. Back where life has stopped and had and been preserved in the images of the revolution. Martin Lopez, the brave boy, went that way. And a gnarled hand with broken nails and fingers worn by work, points toward the stone alleyway. He went that way, say those women. He went alone, with his soul only looking at the hills, but when he heard gunfire, he'd laugh with us. Poor child, may God's peace be with him. 
and Elias Acosta, the one with green eyes and black eyebrows, a beautiful man, the color of a ripe peach, came along this way with his assistant. They stopped at Jonita's house to eat. They had scarcely begun when shouts came from the street. The changos are coming across the bridge. The changos are the carrancistas. They had scarcely begun when shouts came from the street. The changos are coming across the bridge. Madrecita, said Elias Acosta. I'll be right back. Make sure my soup doesn't get cold. His assistant drew the attackers on while Elias Acosta fired on them from a hiding place in an alleyway. His aim was always true. Then they went back to Jonita's house to finish their soup and a cup of gruel. Jonita brought them everything, running this way, flying that way. She knew it was the last time that man would grace the table of her inn. How much do I owe you? he asked timidly. We'll be going. Little mother, because lots of jangos are coming this way. Nothing, son, nothing. Go and may God bless you. You can kind of hear almost going like, you know, no, mijo, no, no, está nada, you know, no pasa nada. You know, que Dios te bendiga, kind of, kind of thing, you know. Um, but she translated, nothing, son, nothing. Go and may God bless you. They rode off that way, she said, raising her dark and calloused arm. Jonita, that's a great image, by the way. Jonita, the little mother of Elias Acosta and so many others. The voices keep on asking. And what about Gandara and El Chino Ortiz? Yes, answered those women who were witnesses to the tragedies. Yes, of course, over there by that rock. They knocked off his hat and they killed him over there in front of that house. Kirili Taralatas, each one tried to get away as best he could. They had come to town. It was February and windy. Their eyes were weary and their hats were bent against their head. Hands, whipped by the wind, cradled the reins of their horses. They only stayed a few hours and then they left. The arms of those sometimes madrecitas pointed out the places. Poor dears, they didn't have time for anything. Will they come back in April or maybe in May? This time one was left behind and he still hasn't been picked up. The garbage cart will do. We can't. If we did, the carrancistas would kill us. Maybe they'll be back in April or May, say the voices of those good and ingenuous women of the North. I like this to sort of end out the semester, um, not only because it's a counter-narrative to sort of, you know, Pancho Villa, but you get the idea that, you know, División del Norte became synonymous with Pancho Villa, but it was more than Pancho Villa, right? It was his soldiers. It was the way in which his soldiers interacted with the people. You got that there's this affinity there, right? Between, you know, this subject, this dude who was sort of like eating soup at this woman's table, Chonita's table, and then Chonita, who is actually our protagonist, right? And there's a kind of subterfuge here in which, you know, even as the División del Norte, Pancho Villa's troops, can't stay, Chonita can. She can sort of operate in plain sight. But then she, she notices sort of like there's this, um, I don't know, this... Uh, the fear, the cruelty of the carrancistas. She underlies that by saying, we can't move this body that's been laying on the street. You know, we could do it with a cart, but you know, if we're seen doing it, it'd be dangerous for us, right? So you got you get sort of a two thing. You know, it, it seems like, you know, on the surface, you could just say, all oh, these women are cooking for the men, the soldiers, and they're housing them. They're giving them what they need. You know, she says, no, nada, nada, you know, no pasa nada. You, you can eat it for free, no, mijo. And, and you can say, oh, this is a very docile or a very, um, you know, feminine way or being or whatever you can get sort of um i don't know like uh i guess you can you can say that there's a gendered manner and that sort of it's retrograde in that way but 
what happens is, is Capoeira saying even these small acts are actually kind of revolutionary because what they're doing is they're harboring, uh, aiding and abetting these sort of like, in the eyes of the Carrancista government, the fugitive soldiers, right? Um, <laughs> they're sort of, they're part of the revolution too, these women. Uh, and not only the part of the revolution, but privileged witnesses, arguably more important than the soldiers, right? The soldiers are just fighting on the front, just fighting. They're fighting on the front against the Carrancista government for, you know, the proletariat, the people. But what's happening here is by virtue of just staying still, staying in one place, they're privileged witnesses to everything that's going around, around them. And so they position themselves as like perfect uh, privileged witnesses to, the, to this counter narrative. Um, I want to look at um, a passage called, I mean, let's, let's go to the last one of the, of the, oh, and before I get there, I want to go to, I'll go to page 75, the lookouts. I was going to do fusilados, which is the, you know, the, the killed, the shot. But read that on your own terms. It sort of jives with what we're talking about here. Uh, but I'll do the look lookouts, and then I'll do the last one. Isaiah Alvarez said, I'm here on page 75, by the way. Isaiah Alvarez said, One time the general left some men as lookouts at a place in the foothills of the Sierra while he went off to get money from Las Cuevas. When he returned, Don Carmen Delgado said, Let me go up first alone, my general, just in case something happens. And so he went on ahead up to the house where the lookouts had been left waiting. Little by little, he brought his horse closer until he stopped in front of the door. The men, clearly disconcerted not to see Villa there, inquired of him, Where's the general? Don Carmen replied, He's coming right behind. Don Carmen later said he had noticed something strange about the fellows, and it suddenly occurred to him to say to them, Will you bring me a pitcher of water? One of them, who seemed to be the boss, and two others carried it to him as if nothing were going on. But as he started to take a drink, one grabbed the reins of the horse, and the others tried to pull him down. Quickly, Don Carmen launched his horse at them, and just then shots were fired from inside the house, wounding Delgado and killing the two boys who had gone with him. Controlling his horse by hand, Don Carmen turned it around and rode off toward the desert, which lay in front of those who had tried to set up an ambush to kill the general. They kept firing at him, but since his horse was very good, he was able to ride it snake-like until he got out of sight. The two dead boys left behind were carrying some gold in their saddlebags. Don Carmen had been a hundred thousand pesos in dollar bills in his, where he had about a hundred thousand dollars. hundred thousand pesos in dollar bills in his. When he got back to where Villa was awaiting, he told him what had happened. The general's only comment was, How did you smell that out, Don Carmen? Now, the reason I bring this up is because obviously the general's Pancho Villa. We get seen with Pancho Villa. But you notice the first line here says, Isaiah Alvarez said. And it really does sort of give you a nice little keyhole into the sort of how, uh, you know, words spread throughout the Mexican Revolution. It's kind of like just like word of mouth. Um, and then later, corridos, which is, is something that I want to bring up um, in relation to Nele Campobello. Uh, we obviously have some corridos throughout this, throughout this uh, you know, novel really um but the oral tradition right you know Nelly Campobello is saying as much as sort of word of mouth is an oral tradition so is corrido and so is being the privileged witness it's all part of the same kind of fabric uh and it's interesting how she sort of brings those three things in play right the corrido you know the song and then we have this sort of word of mouth Isaiah says 
and, and by the way, this is sort of about Pancho Villa avoiding an ambush. Uh, we know around this time that Zapata, if you remember from the documentary, had died in an ambush um, in uh, in the mountains of Morelos. And so it was, uh, it's one of those things where you can see it was almost a near fatal thing. Obviously, Pancho Villa was killed at, at, at one time. But you can kind of see utter written here. There were many attempts on his life. And this was just one in a very prose-like way. It's it's a type of corrido. Um, it tells about an event. It tells about avoiding the event. And, you know, you imagine that this would be about, you know, Don Carmen, you know, the ways in which he sort of prevented this kind of ambush. Um, I want to go to an actual corrido. It's not the last piece in the in the collection, but it's... Um, it's called The Tragedy of Martin on page 85. Royal Dove of Durango, fly off to El Fortin and tell the Carrancistas that here we buried Martin. Martin Lopez used to tell them, no fear have I for you, of you rather. And when it came to bullets, his aim was always true. As his men attacked Columbus, Martin Lopez was heard to say, Let's burn down all the houses and then be on our way. At Tacienda La Labor, a bullet struck him down. Two days he lingered with us, and then his death came round. Men don't ever surrender, Martin Lopez used to cry. It's best to go down fighting. That's the only way to die. On the plains of Catarinas, Martin made his pony run, and on the field of battle they called him the Devil's Son. He'd ride from here to there, shouting loud for all to hear. I've got the Chango's lightning bolt and quiver with me here. On horseback with his lariat, in Canotillo he lassoed them. Every one of them died there, not a single one left wounded. In Chihuahua, in Torreón, and in Parral, so fair, Martin Lopez led his troops in the art of brave warfare. One day, in downtown Chihuahua, astride his favorite horse, he rode up the steps of his building where the government maps its course. He died in Old Las Cruces in the month of September and was buried in Villas Dorados, as all the people remember. The Dorados were Villas' personal bodyguards. They were like his um, elite units. Uh, it says here, uh, Dorados Calvary, Villas' most select troops and bodyguards. As the people all remember, Royal Dove of Durango, fly straight and in a hurry. Tell them that young Martin has just this day been buried. Pancho Villa and his Dorados have cried for the departed, and so have all the people, even the most hard-hearted. All the hills of the north will remember our Martin. He rode up every one of them, by death till last unseen, late unseen, rather. Fly, fly ash gray, dove, fly on to that distant smoke-filled place. Tell the Carrancistas, Martin, rest in the mountains, embrace. If it's one thing we know about Nelly Campobello is that, you know, she was really, you know, she was a ballerina, an actual ballerina, it went to the sort of national ballet in Mexico, actually had a dance company, let me see if I can find the name of it real quick, it was called something plastic, I remember, where was that, ah. she started with Escuela Plastica Dinamica, known as the Escuela Nacional de Danza de Nelly y Gloria Campobello, started with her sister, uh, and actually her first presentation was the Ballet de Masas 3030, right? The 3030 being the caliber of the bullet, um, which is a sort of a, a, a commemoration of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, but, you know, she was always interested in these corridos, right? The the written word, uh, the parable, the, um, the word of mouth, the corrido, all ways in which news spread uh, during the Mexican Revolution. 
and I sort of like to end on this on that because not only does it bring in sort of like the rest of Nelly Capobeo's career, uh, her career as not only just like multifaceted, interesting person, a survivor of the Mexican Revolution, a privileged witness, uh, a recorder of events, a novelist, but also a ballerina, the ways in which she used all these materials to really launch into sort of what became this um, really a sort of a, a renaissance uh, post-revolution, uh, which you have, you know, figures like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera and Orozco and Velázquez and all these muralists and painters and musicians and ballets, you know, ballerinas and stuff. She had this sort of school of dance in Mexico City. Came about, but really flowered through the Mexican Revolution. And what I really want to underscore with this book is not only is it sort of like a feminist take of the Mexican Revolution, but it's a feminist take that really shows a dynamic character. Before this, in, in, in the, the, the piece we had just read, uh, you have like Pancho Villa crying, right? Uh, in this, you have sort of, um, in this one, you have not only the exploits and the braveries of a soldier, uh, but the ways in which the women were integral to the success of certain elements of the revolution. You have a rewriting of history, you know, Pancho Villa's División del Norte and, and members integral to that to that um, that group, uh, the ways in which they were persecuted by um, sort of the succeeding governments, right? And, and, and she's saying, you know, those are kind of half-truths, right? Undermining the historical narratives. Um, but also showing how women in the radical gaze of uh, the privileged witness is a kind of um, revolutionary act in and of itself. Um, and so I like this book not only because it's uh, sort of a nice little keyhole into the rest of Mexican history uh, from the 20th century on. This book is really a bridge between modern Mexico and the roots of modern Mexico, right, as manifest through um, this cataclysmic event that was an inflection point uh, in the Mexican fabric I'm, I'm looking just at the Wikipedia page here because I'm fascinated. Um, and it brings up a lot of the points we mentioned. Novel also shows men in the revolution under a different view. Uh, a soldier that played a joke with children. A soldier that lulled and sang Campo Bello's younger sister Gloria to sleep. Right, These very sensitive moments of the revolution uh, that wasn't all about machismo. wasn't all about fighting. Uh, wasn't all about villains or drunks or rape or any of these archetypes that came to dominate a lot of the Western press about the various groups, about, you know, like, you know, Zapata being, you know, whatever, or Pancho Villa being whatever, or Madero being whatever. This is really a, a woman's take on it. It's kind of cool. I dig it. Um, I want to end with the last piece of the of the collection on page 88. Um, it's called Ismael Maynez and Martin Lopez. Uh, and this will be the thing that you'll respond to in uh, Blackboard, you know, this character, Martin Lopez, occurs again and again and again. And I want to sort of ask you why that is and, and what the ending, how does it resonate with the rest of the work? Uh, and I think that's sort of where I want to sort of have you guys sort of attack that in discussions. I'll go ahead and read it for you. They reached Rosario and kept on going. General Villa found out and picked the most favorable place for the attack. Martin Lopez was charged with taking some cavalry troops and drawing the enemy. Ismael Maynez, a colonel on Villa's general staff, would go with Martin to check the changos. Ismael lives in the Allende Valley in the state of Chihuahua. This was the order the jefe gave us, says Maynez. Look, Martin, go and stir them up a bit. Don't waste much ammunition, but attack and then make like you've been beaten. Right under their noses, ride back this way to regroup 
but take that path over there by those mesquite bushes and wait there. The signal to attack will be the noise from these two ladies I have here, and he showed them two hand grenades he had ready. He, had ready. he himself would throw them. Until that time, no one should move, no one, no matter what. Then, when the attack is underway, he said, You, Martin, will take your boys and block that exit way. And he pointed out a probable escape route. I want to trap them right here. Go ahead, Martin. Move out quickly, boys. General Villa had already spread out his men. Behind the hillocks on the slopes, they were all flat out on their stomachs, waiting very calmly. Ismael Maynez's blue eyes squint as if to capture the exact vision of his companions lying there. He keeps talking with the characteristic blankness of the men from the north when they are expounding their truth. Quote, so we went off to find them. Martin, who was the spitting image of General Villa, used to do things so precisely that he never failed. He would carry out orders as if he were himself. He had absorbed the general's every thought, and we could almost see that he was guessing what the general wanted. It made no difference if he was far away or nearby. Ah, that Martin was so tricky, how he could fool those damn changos. You had to see how he'd play with them. He'd do whatever he wanted, says Ismael, laughing heartily to himself. And when he and Elias Acosta would get together, heaven help my soul, what a pair they were. We used to call Elias the she-wolf. Those two were incredibly mischievous and capable of anything. Unfortunately, Elias was killed very quickly. In every battle, we thought we'd lose Martin. Neither men nor bullets mattered to him. He'd take them on like the devil himself. We owe to Martin, under the jefe's orders, some of the greatest defeats we handed to the Carrancistas. Following the orders, he had Martin Lopez and his cavalry confronted the Changos. They, in turn, approached with considerable wariness. The Vista cavalry, led by Martin Lopez, didn't answer their fire. Well, we were almost face to face, says Ismael Mañez. We hit them with a round of lead, and then we turned around without engaging in combat. Falling back little by little, shot by shot, we managed to get to the path the jefe had shown us. Heading up behind the rocks, we dismounted and crouched down. The Carrancisas were coming closer and closer. They were already on the plains below. Still, we heard nothing. The general hadn't thrown the grenades. Martin said, take a look at what's going on. So I climbed up into a mesquite and looked from there. The general was in the same spot as were his men, and no one was moving. The enemy was practically on top of them, almost at the foot of the improvised trenches, and no signal had been given to us. I wonder what the matter was with El Jefe, said Martin anxiously. Take a look, a good look. Yes, they are there, I said, but without understanding what was going on. The fortifications were about to be breached. I climbed down quickly and gave Martin the glasses so he could see for himself what was happening. I still hadn't crouched down with the two ladies the general had and his hand exploded. Sorry, I just reading that and I was like, <coughs> so intense. I still hadn't crouched down when the two ladies the general had in his pocket exploded. Quickly, we mounted on the run and took cover to the side the general had indicated. My God, what an attack that was. Those jangos were really frightened. That caused them to make a half-turn, a mortal half-turn. Martin's maneuvering was a pleasure to see, the jefe facing them, Martin almost taking on the enemy's whole left flank. What a pretty picture that was. In the entire five years of our campaign against Carranza, we never again saw so many dead changos at one time. 2,800 Carrancistas died. For Morguilla, 
that ambush was one of the biggest failures. Even more so if you take into account that at the time they considered us already defeated. Ismael Maynez ends his story with a sip of coffee and looks up toward the Alto de Cantera, where one day death would find him. Mama said that the town of Parral had celebrated that victory, and that one morning, after snowfall, some dark, ragged shapes passed our street. A few were dragging rifles, others were on horses they could barely walk. They weren't so much human beings as shapes wrapped in grime, dirt, and dust, veritable apparitions. My Aunt Fela and Mama had seen them when they passed by Segunda de Arrayo in pursuit of the Villistas. They were happy then, and today, had they dragged themselves all the way from Rosario, Mama's eyes had a lovely light in them. I think she was pleased. The people of our land had, been, had beaten the savages. Horses, hooves would be hurt again. Our street would be joyful once more, and Mama would take me by the hand to church where the Virgin was waiting for her. Last lines of Nelly Campobello's Cartucho. Right. The Vistas do it. She ends painting them as heroes. And uh, the Carrancista is interesting. She, men she mentions they are uh, beasts, right? Fascinating book. Fascinating take. A Norteña take on the Mexican Revolution. Uh, arguably the greatest book written about the Mexican Revolution ever. Cool. Want to hear your thoughts in the discussion thread? Um, I just checked right now. Oil is down at negative $22 a barrel. <laughs> Let me check one more time. Uh, just, I had it, I just had it going in the corner. Negative $36.10 a barrel. That's fucking, they are paying you to take oil. In any case, English 3322 lives. <laughs>